change is always most difficult for the first one who has to block it. So I'm, I'm thankful and impressed that Dennis remembered to have you turn that in. I probably would have forgotten to ask you to do that if it had been me. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, would you open with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we will begin reading in just a moment at verse 12. As you're doing that, uh, I would ask a question just to get us thinking here this morning. How do you explain to somebody what separates a child from an adult? Or uh, what distinguishes the immature from the mature? There's a number of ways you could answer that. One answer that's often held out, and I think rightly, is to think about the capacity for delayed gratification. We can, as we mature, as we come into adulthood, we're more capable of seeing beyond the immediate uh, and seeing beyond that well enough to actually make choices now on the basis of that expanded perspective. It's not hard for any adult in here to look back and remember instances in our past where we have had to learn that lesson uh, and to develop that, that sense. And as it turns out, that, that capacity for delayed gratification is pretty important in terms of uh, life outcomes, isn't it? Some of you may have, have heard of the famous, in some ways now infamous, the results are questioned by some Today, but there was an, an experiment done that made a lot of, of, uh, of impact many years ago called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, where kids were offered one marshmallow now or two marshmallows if they would wait for 15 minutes uh, unobserved. And they, they measured that and they proceeded to then watch those kids as they went on in their lives and developed. And, the, at least the initial results that they put out were pretty profound. They, what they were finding was that those kids who were able to wait to delay that gratification wound up later in life to show measurably better outcomes in everything from SAT scores to even health measurements in their, in their physical lives. It's quite something to see the, the varied impact that that can have. And maybe for a child, it's the difference between one marshmallow and two marshmallows. But as an adult, we know that the stakes rise significantly, don't they? It winds up oftentimes putting us on entirely different trajectories in life. There's so many ways we can, we can experience that. The whole notion, I was just thinking of examples of how this plays out. The, the whole concept of retirement savings exemplifies that, doesn't it? I have to learn to intentionally live without now because I know that there will be needs later that I need to be ready for or think in the relational realms. I mean, in so many ways, as we interact with each other, learning to say no to what I might want now, what might seem, uh, seem best now, uh, in light of what I know is coming, this is just a crucial Capacity. Think of the desire we have sometimes in the moment to put that person in their place, to vent my anger upon them, or to give up and walk away from a circumstance. Learning to say no now out of the conviction that it will produce something far preferable later. If you take that 
idea, that reality, and you extend it out wide enough, in some ways it becomes what we're talking about as Christians when we talk about the need to cultivate an eternal mindset. What does it look like to have an eternal mindset? Well, one simple way to answer that is to say that it looks like recognizing that not only is Christ all that matters in an ultimate sense, in a cosmic sense, but what's more, an eternal mindset looks like recognizing that in the end, all I will care about, and in fact, all that anybody is going to care about, is wrapped up in a single word that is Jesus. I mean, just think of what we know to be true from what God has revealed to us. There is coming an actual day in history in which the entire human race is going to bow before that single individual, either willingly rejoicing or unwillingly under compulsion. We're going to read about that day in Philippians 2 when we get there. And which of those groups you find yourself in will determine the state of your existence forever. On that day, all that anybody is going to care about is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What he thinks of them, where they stand in relation to him, whether he loves them or hates them. This morning we're going to hear Paul speak to what I can only imagine are two of the more motivating realities in our lives as we're living this life. And as I name them, I imagine that if you had time to hit pause and just think about it for a minute, I can only guess that you'd find that these have been two of the more basic motivations factoring into your thinking and decision-making in life as a human being. They are, number one, the desire to avoid suffering, and number two, the desire for respect. Paul's going to speak of situations that bring up both of those very natural human motivations from verses 12 to 18. And then in verse, from verse 18 to verse 20, we're going to see him move from his present to his future, and he's going to talk about how he has committed to living the rest of his life because of the eternal mindset that Christ has given him. If you're taking notes, these are the three headings that we're going to walk through as we're working through verse 12 to verse 20 this morning. We're going to see first that an eternal mindset creates a willingness to endure suffering. Secondly, that an eternal mindset creates a willingness to be disrespected. And really, as we see them, we're just going to be seeing those realities coming up in Paul and in his circumstances as examples. But then both of those are going to be explained or sort of exposited, if you will, in verses 18 to 20. What we'll see there, thirdly, is that an eternal mindset recognizes something. And it's what fuels both of those things. It recognizes that trials produce perseverance, leading to salvation. Let's hear our, our passage before we go forward. I'll read verses 12 to 20 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Paul continues in this way. He says, 
I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Let's start to see these first two examples lived out in the experience of Paul. The first that we'll see is that an eternal mindset creates a willingness to endure suffering. As we come into verse 12, you can hear what he's doing. Paul is shifting now in the letter. He's finished with the opening, the greeting, the introduction. And he's shifting now to a place in which he's going to give them an update on his situation. The Philippians are obviously aware of the general facts of his situation. I mean, they knew where to send Epaphroditus to find him. Uh, they know that he's been imprisoned there in Rome. He doesn't even need to say it. He just refers in verse 12 to what has happened to me. And they know what he means. And notice the concern that he describes. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Is he saying that because he knows that that's been their concern? They're wondering the effect this has had on the gospel? Or is he indirectly suggesting to them what should be their concern? It's hard to know. Either one of those would make sense. But either way, what's clear is that Paul is showing us what his concern was, isn't he? And it's his concern and all that he is going through in this long now period of imprisonment and transfer. And we know of the dangers that he faced in that transfer and the suffering. This is his concern, that the gospel advance has been served by his circumstances. And it's his concern because he understands the precious nature of the message that he has been sent to bring. He knows how precious is the cargo. When the value of the cargo is sufficiently greater than the value of the one carrying it, the place of our concern changes in these kinds of situations. I may love Frodo. I may think that Frodo is a great guy. But I will send him to his death if it means the ring of power will be destroyed. You think of the horrible situation that some families face sometimes as they learn that a child perhaps has been kidnapped. I think of situations we've heard in recent years in foreign countries where at great danger uh, some of these professionals have had to go in trying to rescue uh, someone who has been kidnapped. 
It's horrible to imagine that happening to a family. But I know one thing. If that happened in my context, I may not know, I may only be able to imagine the danger and sufferings that are being endured by the special ops guy who's putting himself in mortal danger to rescue my kidnapped child. But I will only have one question for him. Is my child okay? That's the question. Paul is happy to report that regarding the most significant threat, the threat to the progress of the saving message of the gospel, he says, there is no reason to fear. In fact, the opposite is actually the case. He says in verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 13 names the ways that advance has happened. There are two ways that that advance has taken place. The first is in verse 13. The gospel has advanced in that now it has become manifest. It has become obvious that he is in chains for Christ. He says that that fact has become clear, obvious to the whole imperial guard. That's pretty astounding. Now, an entire regiment of soldiers in Rome itself know the name of Christ. They know that he is one who demands allegiance. They know that this Paul, who they've been spending time with, getting to know personally, they've heard his eloquence and his intelligence. They've seen that he's worthy of respect. Now they know that this man has found Christ worthy even of imprisonment and, if necessary, of death. He says that this fact is clear as well to all the rest, whoever that means. We aren't clear about what group he's describing when he says that. But his point is easy to understand, isn't it? The saving message of the person and work of Jesus is rapidly expanding, and its expansion has only increased because of what has happened to Paul. That's the first way that the gospel has been advanced by Paul's imprisonment. The second is in verse 14. Not only is it true that unbelievers have been greatly reached by the gospel because of this, but what's more, he says, the believers around Paul have been emboldened to speak fearlessly because of his imprisonment. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And notice Paul is going to evaluate the the whole situation of his imprisonment with the conclusion in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. He is proclaimed among unbelievers who otherwise wouldn't even know his name. And he is proclaimed by believers in Rome with a fearlessness that they wouldn't have possessed if it were not for these poor circumstances that Paul is suffering. That is to say, Paul considers his circumstances, which were not good, even while in Rome. Being in Rome was a far more comfortable imprisonment than others that he suffered. But in Rome, he's in literal chains. He is living with a guard. He Likely because he's a Roman citizen, he has something of a uh, daily food stipend provided to him, but it covers a bare minimum. He's personally responsible for anything beyond that, any provisions that he needed. Uh, He'll have to ride at one point and ask for a cloak to be brought to him before winter. This this is not an easy time. He considers his own personal circumstances 
and he considers the effect that they're having on his mission that Christ has assigned to him, and he says, I rejoice at what has happened. Now, so far, all that we're doing is we're just noticing that we're seeing this in Paul. We haven't stopped and thought about it yet. We haven't thought about the way that an eternal mindset has played into this. We're just observing the, the effect that this is having on Paul. Uh, and what I want to do is to move into verses 15 to 18 and add to this picture a second change to Paul's natural way of thinking. And then we'll start to learn how an eternal mindset lies behind both of them. Right? So this is, this is the path that we're taking. The first change we've noticed is that Paul has become willing to endure suffering for the sake of the glory of Christ. And in fact, not just to endure it, but even to rejoice in it. The second change that we notice in Paul has to do with the way that we think about respect in this life, even deserved respect. It's verse 15 that makes us start thinking about the idea of respect. And it does that because we find that the very emboldening effect that Paul's imprisonment has produced has borne itself out in ways that are good and in ways that are not so good. Starting with verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The, the increase of evangelistic activity happening around Paul is being emboldened because of his imprisonment. But that's happening by means of a mixture of pure and impure motives. Notice as we start comparing these two groups that he's telling us about, notice that by describing both groups, he's expanding on the news of verse 14, which is to say, he views both of these groups as these brothers in Christ with him. Most of the brothers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some for this reason and some for that. That's important because there are going to be others in this letter that are opponents of Paul who he'll describe as opponents in Philippians 1.28, others he'll describe as dogs in Philippians 3.2, and these are not those. There is some debate about whether we should be, when we hear him describe this group who is preaching Christ out of envy, uh, there is some debate about whether we should be imagining differences in their doctrine compared to what Paul has been preaching, or whether the difference is purely one of personal animosity against Paul. I think we're warranted to simply take Paul at his word here in what he's said. Uh, he explains in verse 15 that what sets this first group apart is their motive. Notice he says they're being driven in their evangelistic work by what? Verse 17 by selfish ambition, and out of some sort of personal dislike of Paul. He says, they're doing this thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It can seem strange 
to us to imagine this being a group of genuine Christians. How could they feel this way about Paul? And more importantly, how could a true Christian be guilty of proclaiming Christ, as it puts it in verse 17, not sincerely? How could a Christian do that? Well, we have to understand that that word, when it says not sincerely, that word has to do with having impure motives, not pure motives. I wonder if you've ever done something, even a good thing, and if you're honest with yourself, you were doing it with mixed motives. I don't have to wonder that, actually, do I? We don't do the things we do with pure motives. Sometimes that's more clear than others. Here's an example. Uh, have you ever found yourself talking to another believer, asking them to pray for someone in some other situation? And you know that at one and the same time, you genuinely do care about that situation. But also, you are trying to criticize the person in the situation needing prayer. Have you not found yourself quite talented sometimes at talking about somebody in a way full of subtlety? There is no ill will that you could be caught in, but you know you're putting things in just such a way to lower this person's estimation of the one that you're talking about. It's called gossip. It's called being manipulative. And usually we're doing that because for some reason we want ourselves to be seen as better. We want someone else to look worse. It's called in verse 15, envy and rivalry. And you'd better believe that Christians are fully capable of behaving that way. When we do such a thing, it doesn't mean that there is no genuineness, no genuine love. It means that we are fallen and that we do not do the things we do often with pure motives. Some of the brothers that Paul knows about are doing no such thing. They are preaching Christ in Paul's absence, verse 16, out of love. knowing He says, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That makes it seem to me that when he says out of love, he's talking about their love for him. They see him in prison. They see him suffering, and such is their love for him that it only makes them all the more want the gospel he's brought to spread. They are emboldened because of their love for him. But Paul knows of these others as well that are around him. And he knows that even as they are spreading the true gospel, some of them are doing it in a way that simultaneously attacks him personally. We're talking about subtle critiques and attacks that will misrepresent Paul, that will damage his reputation. And in situations in which he is going to be helpless to do anything about it. They are baseless criticisms. They're trumped up. But friends, what does that naturally do to us in our spirits to be in a situation like that? And in verse 18, we hear how Paul chooses to react to it. His reaction goes like this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Now, at this point, I want us to pause together and notice something that's going on here. 
We're witnessing a self-conscious decision on Paul's part to let go of what is a very natural desire. The desire for respect, and especially the desire for respect where respect is due, is a natural desire. You notice when you read the scriptures, God's word does not call us to disrespect ourselves or others. It calls us to give proper respect. Romans 12 puts it as uh, thinking about ourselves with sober judgment. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, but thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. Paul is an apostle commissioned by Christ himself, helping lay the foundation of the church, and he's being maligned. Feelings of righteous indignation are natural here, and yet Paul has been brought to a place where he is able to let go of his need for the respect of men. It becomes yet another thing he is willing to let go of in the pursuit of something greater. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You could say it this way. You could say Paul has been enabled to do what John the Baptist was enabled to do when he said of his Lord, he must increase and I must decrease. And what we're seeing here in Paul is the living out of what we just read last week in verses 9 and 10. Paul, Paul's love has been made to abound more and more so that he has come to approve what is excellent. He knows that there are many things out there that are good, including respect being shown where it is due, but that do not hold a candle to what is best. It's good to remember that he's going to teach explicitly to this effect a bit later. He's going to say in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, that he has learned in whatever situation to be content. And before that, he'll talk about the thing that he has found to be of such value, of such significance, that he is willing to lose everything else. In chapter 3, he describes the advantages that are afforded to him. You might just glance over, it's probably on the same page there, to chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He's been describing the advantages of the family he was born into, uh, his education, his training in the law of God. And he says this in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, what, what is he saying there about these things, these advantages that he has counted as loss and has suffered the loss of? Did he lose the reality of belonging to the tribe of Benjamin? Did he lose his training in the law? I mean, did coming to know Christ make him forget everything that he had been taught? No, of course not. And in fact, all of those things continue to be very useful to Paul in a number of ways. What he's lost are the physical, social advantages that those things brought to him. What he's lost is the high reputation and respect that those things had brought him. That's what he's suffered the loss of. And yet he's come to not even care because he knows what he's received in its place is so much greater. 
This may seem like a little point, but it's actually pretty important. Because what it does is it protects us from thinking that to follow Paul's example, what we need to do is we need to to eschew God's benefits, uh, his gifts and talents he's given us. We We need to shed them in some way because they're rubbish compared to Christ. He's not using the word rubbish to describe the goodness of those gifts or the usefulness in life of those things. He's comparing the relative worth of those things themselves to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And his point there couldn't be clearer. Being with Christ is of such value that it is worth the loss of anything. And if giving up some things is necessary in coming to be found in Christ, then I'm going to be forever glad at those losses. In fact, I will rejoice in those losses. And on that day, where we see him face to face, it will be easy to think that way, won't it? What does it take to be able to think that way now? It takes an eternal mindset. These two examples that we've seen in Paul's life bring us into the final piece of our text this morning because in verses 18 to 20, Paul makes statements about the usefulness to that effect, even of the very trials themselves that he's alluding to. Coming into suffering, coming into disrespect and malignment. These trials, as it turns out, are themselves means in the hands of God to a divine end goal for his children. I mean, they are themselves means to the end of our everlasting good. And we will never see them that way until we cultivate an eternal mindset. We will never be able to see our trials and sufferings in that way without being given a perspective that can look into what we've been told concerning God's plans in eternity. Look again at verse 18. He's just spoken of his being maligned, misrepresented, attacked through lies and manipulation in ways he cannot control. Who doesn't hate that? And yet he says, what then? Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And at the end of verse 18, he says it again. As he looks to the future, you could say, as he looks to the future with his jaw set, he says, yes, and I will. I will rejoice. Why the repetition there of this? These are the words of a man who understands that his response to these circumstances is going to require some explanation. And in fact, I can only imagine that he has had to think himself. He's had to work himself into this frame of mind. Paul is not a robot. He is also not a glorified human being. And what's more, he shows in other letters that there are times when it's proper to defend oneself and even to be righteously angry. And yet this is what we see here. One commentator made a helpful observation here. He said, we would go too far if we imagined Paul gritting his teeth as he speaks of rejoicing. But we may be sure that his joyful response was not natural and easy. It would have been unexpected in view of his trials, and therefore it required explanation. 
And his explanation gives to us this morning our third and final display of this eternal mindset. What we find here is that an eternal mindset is able to recognize that trials produce perseverance leading to salvation. I've worded it that way deliberately. I hope to flesh that out for us here as we're continuing. Notice that something changes within verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, he is rejoicing because Christ is proclaimed. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That is not about benefit to him, is it, to Paul. It's only about glory to Christ. He's rejoicing for that reason. But Then at the end of 18 and into 19, there's rejoicing for another reason. He says, yes, and I will rejoice for... I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Do you hear the change there? Now he's claiming that he's going to rejoice because these trials he's talking about are somehow going to benefit him personally. And that benefit he calls my deliverance in the ESV. The word is soteria, salvation. These will turn out unto my salvation. How is Paul saying those trials are actually going to benefit him? What's he talking about here with this deliverance, this salvation? There's two options. Some think he's referring to his release from prison. Others think he's referring in some way to God's work in salvation in his life. Those are the two options here as he's talking about his deliverance. I'm convinced that he is not talking about release from prison here. And I I think that for several reasons. But in the main, I think that because the language of verse 20 all seems to point away from that. Verse 20 completes the thought of verse 19. Can I jump through Paul's words in verse 20 to grab his main point? What we read in verse 20 is this. 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is a deliverance he's talking about that he is going to experience irrespective of what happens to him in prison. It's deliverance, it's salvation, that is sure regardless of whether he lives or dies. So I don't think it can be talking about a release from prison here, that he is looking forward to in this text. He is going to speak of confidence shortly after this, that he's going to be released. But I don't think that's what he's talking about with this deliverance. Furthermore, he speaks of this outcome that he's so sure of as an outcome in which he will, quote, not be at all ashamed, but that instead Christ will be honored in his body. Now, friends, that's language of perseverance in faith to the end. Compare compare that to what we read in 1 John 2, 28. Just listen to this language. John writes there, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have boldness. It's the same word that's used here, translated courage. So that when he appears, we may have boldness and may not be ashamed to face him at his coming. Again, the same language is here. In such a context, those who are ashamed at his coming, are the apostates who John's been warning about, who did not remain, but who they are those who will be ashamed at his coming. 
Paul is speaking about God's work in salvation. Not released from prison. But that presents a question for us. In what way can Paul speak of his trials that he's going through as being tied into, somehow leading toward his salvation? His point here is this, that he has come to understand that the trials God brings him through are themselves effective in his life. This is something for us to talk about this morning and see if it doesn't become clear how an eternal mindset winds up changing entirely the way we see and the way we process the sufferings and trials that we are going through in this life. It's fascinating to me to talk about such a subject to you, as I know that even in speaking about this, every one of you in here is in the midst of trials and sufferings, different from one another, and yet it's something that is common to all of us, isn't it? Why? What is God doing? Let's see if it doesn't become clear that an eternal mindset changes the way we process these experiences. Let me remind us of something else that Paul wrote, uh, this time to Christians in Rome. Would you turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 5? You can keep your finger here in Philippians 1. But I want to read the first five verses of Romans 5. And as I do, I hope very much that you'll notice how similar verses 2 and 3 of what I'm about to read are to what we're reading this morning in Philippians. This is what Paul says there. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You hear that? It's just like verse 18. Verse 3 here. Not only that, I think of, yes, and I will rejoice because... Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What did he say that sufferings produce? Even here he describes it as if it were something we're expected to be surprised about. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And again, like our text, it's a statement that he knows he needs to explain. Why would we rejoice in our sufferings? What sense does that make? And he explains it here by saying that sufferings produce something in the hands of God and the lives of his children. They produce endurance. That's the word for perseverance. And hear the progression there in Romans 5. We, as justified men and women, as those at peace with God, we who have obtained access into saving grace, as he calls us, here's the, here's the progression. We are brought through suffering, and we do not walk away from God. We persevere in looking to him in faith and in trust. And that endurance in suffering, what comes out of that? Character. That's what comes out of that. God builds us up. Think of the opposite. Think of what it does 
to someone as they go through their lives and they encounter difficulties and they just run from them. That produces a kind of character as well, doesn't it? Being made to, en to endure and to remain steadfast in faith and confidence in God through suffering produces something in us that he calls character. God builds us up and we see it and others see it and they tell us that. They encourage us, just like we've seen Paul do in his introduction, as he's told them about the graces he's seen at work in them. We are made to see that growing character, and by it we know that we belong to God and that he's begun something in us. And that that something is a thing that he has promised to finish. We're shown these things, and what does that produce? Well, it produces hope. And not just it, not a worldly hope, a hope, he says, that is not going to disappoint us. It is not going to be put to shame. Now look again at verse 19 of our text in Philippians 1. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul tells us here that in God's plans to deliver him, from sin, to deliver him finally as he conforms him to the image of Christ. Paul recognizes that God is in fact using these very trials of his life to accomplish that. He's not accomplishing that despite the trials. He is using them as the means to accomplish this great purpose. One thing that verses 18 to 20 make us recognize is that the Bible describes different aspects of God's saving work at different places. Have you noticed that? It's wise and good for us to let the Bible say one thing at a time and not ask every verse to say everything that could be said about the topic that it's bringing up. Here, what is Paul so excited about? He's rejoicing at the realization that he is being saved in what way? From what? What do we hear in verse 20? Paul rejoices that he is being saved from a life that comes to its end to discover that it has been wasted and has ended in shame. And you can glance down. You can see where we're headed. The next verse finds Paul making that declaration, doesn't it? For me to live is Christ. Paul knows that as an image bearer of God, he exists for the glory of God who has now revealed himself in the person of Christ. He lives to bring glory to Christ. And Paul, having been given a mindset that can see beyond the immediate, has come to recognize that his trials are creating opportunities for the fulfilling of the deepest purposes of his existence. The darker the trial, the more brightly the love of God will shine through him. He says, I am being saved from being put to shame by finding that Christ was not exalted in my body, in life and in death. My friends, as we hear this, we're hearing what he's going to describe in chapter 4. Now, we're hearing nothing less than what he calls the secret of contentment that he has learned. What if I can come to know? I mean, to really have such a mindset, a perspective, that I come to grips with the notion that every one of us is going to die. And that none of us, no matter what, is going to take anything from this life 
with us into the next? What if I really come to have such a perspective? If I really do know that, and I know what it is to be united to Christ in life and in death, and then I suffer a great loss in the physical realm, then and only then can my mind quickly come to the place that is able to say, it was inevitable that I lose that thing in this life, one way or another. But is there a way that my response to this loss can in fact serve my eager expectation and hope to not at all be ashamed at the appearance of my Lord? You see, the worldview that Paul is starting to develop in this letter and the mindset that he's holding out to us carries with it a potential that's almost impossible to overestimate. Someone who could manage to walk consistently with this mindset would become, in so many ways, unassailable. In so many ways, they could become fearless. Think of verse 28 of this, of this chapter. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, which is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. They could become undiscontentable to create a new word. Philippians 4.12, I've learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry. There's something that God shows us as he allows us to see his plans and his purposes that create that capacity. I like that word, undiscontentable. This is a mindset that God's word holds out to us. It calls us to chase after it with our minds and to pray that God would conform our will and our intellect to these very realities. And what we're seeing from Paul is that it is, as that happens, it is not super spirituality. It's not monastic thinking that gives away all possessions and lives in a cave. It's not robotic non-feeling that no longer hurts and chafes at trial and loss. It's none of those things. It's learning to factor eternity into our experiences. And it understands that for those who love God, he causes all things to work together for their good. Romans 8, 28. And so what it offers us is a fearless life in which, like Paul, salvation is not our own freedom, or even the preservation of the things we love in this life, or even the preservation of our life itself. Salvation is the magnification of Christ, with whom I will dwell forever. One last thing to see in what Paul says here. We passed over it. We passed over two important statements in verse 19. Let me read that verse again. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You notice those means that he points to and the way that he puts them together? Through your prayers and by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Our circumstances don't produce this in us on their own by default. They, are, they produce this in us as God works in us and renews our minds. 
For the sake of time, let me just share with you Silva's comments here. This is so clarifying. He says, an additional and remarkable point is that Paul's recognition in verse 19, excuse me, a, a remarkable point is Paul's recognition in verse 19 that his perseverance does not take place automatically, but rather through the prayers of the Philippians and the support provided by Jesus' spirit. The point to note here is that even Paul's personal growth, his sanctification, does not take place in isolation from the support of the church. It is indeed a sobering thought that our spiritual relationship with God is not a purely individualistic concern. We are dependent on the Spirit's power in answer to the intercessory prayers of God's people. And we may add that the Spirit's help itself is normally manifested through the fellowship of fellow believers. The godly Ignatius, early Bishop of Antioch, learned this lesson well, as we can tell from his comment to the church in Philadelphia while he was on his way to martyrdom. As he wrote to them, your prayer will perfect me. End quote. May God so grant it that we in our generation will push back with passion against the perverted version of Christianity so common today. So many of our time have thought it pleasing to Christ to try to walk after him by ourselves without a committed banding together going through life together, pursuing our Lord together with his people. We need each other. We need the prayers of a Christian family. And God tells us to expect him to work, bless, protect, sanctify, by means of the community of faith. Every bit as much as a brick in a building is guarded and supported by all the bricks that are around it. It's for good reason that we are described with just such a metaphor. So as we draw to an end this morning, let's do that by simply drawing our eyes across our text this morning, verses 12 to 20. Let me suggest a broad summary here. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 18, in every way Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, in that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is not a mindset that comes naturally to any member of the human race. Of course, to be sure, those who are still in Adam cannot find any hope from a perspective that looks beyond this life. But my friends, even for those who are in Christ, this eternal mindset is one that must be cultivated. Paul has to remember what he knows to be true. He has to recommit himself to it. Yes, I will rejoice. Yes, I know there is reason to rejoice even in my trials, because I know what God is doing, and I know that the day is coming in which all that anyone will care about is whether Christ has been honored in them.
The applications of a passage like this are so easy to see, are they not? What parts of my life am I still unwilling to hold loosely? Is it your own reputation? Is it the legacy of your work? Is it the health of your children? You understand that in a century, no one will remember who you are. In a century, all of your kids will be gone. None of those things are unimportant. They are all important. They all involve a stewardship that is ours to guard and that we're going to answer for. But wherein lies the true significance in any of them? That's the question for this morning. The true significance in all the stewardships we've been given lies in the fact that they all present ways in which Christ will or will not be glorified in our bodies. And so if he gives fruit, I will rejoice because it is another means for me to glorify Christ through my circumstances. And if he takes it all away, I will rejoice because it is another means for me to glorify God through my circumstances. You see, even now this morning, Paul is building a case. And he's working it toward his, its peak when he's going to say in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. We're hearing the key to joy in this life, and the key to unity in our walk together through this life. All the things that, that we think rightly say are the themes of Philippians. This is the key to them. And Paul says in Chapter 3, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. You want to grow? You want to be a mature Christian? This is what that is. And the only way we possibly come into settled possession of it in this life is by coming to see beyond the present, such that we understand what God is doing with the present. It's to come to think with an eternal mindset. May God grant that to us more and more as we walk after our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, every time we come before you in your word and we bow our knee, we find that you are faithful to us. We find that you know us. And that it's true what you've told us in your word. You are feeding our souls as we come to you hungry to hear from your word. Father, thank you for bringing these things before us this morning. And we ask for your help, Father. We ask that you would guide our thinking. You would transform our minds in just this way, that we would come to see that in every circumstance of life, what matters, the significance in it is found in the fact that we have the opportunity to bring glory to Christ, whether in life or in death. Help us to remember that you have numbered our days, and yet that those who are in Christ, though we die, yet shall we live. And we who are hidden in him will never die. God, give it to us to live out our life with just such an eternal mindset. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.